You're listening to A People's Anthology. Produced by Boston Review, this is a new podcast that highlights and explores radical texts from US history, with our first six episodes surfacing a few important documents related to the urban rebellions of the 1960s and 70s. This is episode six, our season finale, on Asata Shakur's essay, Women in Prison, How It Is With Us, introduced by Jackie Wang and read by Aja Monet. The teacher, poet, and revolutionary Asata Shakur was born in Flushing, Queens. She became a socialist during her college years, and after a visit to the Oakland chapter of the Black Panthers, she joined the party. Eventually, Asata became head of the Harlem Panthers and went on to join the Black Liberation Army, a loosely organised underground offshoot of the Black Panthers, which advocated guerrilla warfare against the US government. As Asata described in 1973, the idea of the Black Liberation Army emerged from conditions in black communities, conditions of poverty, indecent housing, massive unemployment, poor medical care and inferior education. The Black Liberation Army stands for freedom and justice for all people. She became the target of federal surveillance for this work. Um, So around this period, there was intense state repression, particularly targeting the Black Panthers. The most notorious form is the FBI's COINTEL program, so their counterintelligence program. And in 1971 when COINTELPRO um, was disbanded, it evolved into the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So Asada was someone who was intensely scrutinized and harassed and a target of these state programs. The event that led to her ultimate incarceration was um, a shootout that happened in 1973 on the New Jersey Turnpike. And I won't go too much into the details. Um, To make a long story short, I was captured in New Jersey in 1973 after being shot with both arms held in the air and then shot again from the back. Here's a recording of Asata herself describing the incident. I was left on the ground to die. And when I did not, I was taken to a local hospital where I was threatened, beaten, and tortured. In 1977, I was convicted in a trial that can only be described as a legal lynching. Basically, the outcome of the trial was Asada was convicted of first-degree murder, and Asada was sentenced to life in prison. Asada wrote this essay, Women in Prison, How It Is With Us, during this time she spent in Rikers in New York. But it's about so much more than just her experience. She focuses on all the women in the prison, their experiences with racism and their relationships with one another. Over 95% of the women Asada encountered were poor Black and Puerto Rican women. And she notes that the effects of racism were not only material but psychic as well. And she's troubled by what she thinks is a lack of solidarity between women. So there's a part in the text where she says that um, 
men in prison will often refer to each other as brothers and there's political mobilization, but she said that she heard women call each other bitch and whore more than they called each other sister. So Asada also observed that black liberation and women's liberation struggles had not reached the women she encountered. Um, the women developed coping mechanisms to manage their pain, such as drugs and entertainment. This is something that you can tell reading the text deeply troubles Asada. She found that women blame themselves for the oppression that they experienced. But this couldn't be further from the truth. As Jackie describes, the state targeted the poor and especially poor people of colour through incarceration in conjunction with a programme of austerity. It's not white-collar criminals who go to prison. It's poor people who go to prison. And their poverty and their survival is criminalized. So prison reproduces both white supremacy and capitalism. Mass incarceration is happening alongside deindustrialization, white flight, and the hollowing out of cities. And what we're seeing happening is prisons expand to absorb the people in the urban centers who are left behind. So this is really the backdrop. We're seeing rates of incarceration skyrocketing, but it's not because people have suddenly decided to commit more crime. We're seeing massive expansion of prison and policing infrastructure as a way to, quote-unquote, solve social problems that politicians don't actually care about solving. And this is actually, you know, using the prisons and police rather than investment in public infrastructure for healthcare and housing, this is something that Asada addresses in the text. So she writes about how when women hit rock bottom, they subconsciously get themselves arrested so they can get clean and access healthcare. You know, these women are, are developing this dependency on prison itself because there's a failure to provide public infrastructure, jobs, livelihood, health care for these poor women of colour. Asata recognised how women were criminalised for their survival and their willingness to defend themselves. This is a long-standing feature of the US prison system. Um, so there's been a lot of headlines recently about the decline in jail populations across the country, but it actually hasn't been the case for women in particular. I want to emphasize the attention Asada brings to the issue of the criminalization of women for their survival. And this is something that people have been organizing around in recent years. So there have been a lot of um, campaigns to free women who have been convicted of assault or murder for self-defense. So in particular, there is the case of Marissa Alexander, who was threatened with 60 years 
in prison for defending herself against an abusive husband. So ultimately, she served three years, and she also served two years of house detention. And it was really a national campaign that led to her being released early. And we've also seen organizing around getting um, sex workers and trans women in particular released, women who have defended themselves and been criminalized for their survival. So there was also a national campaign to free Cece McDonald, who is a black trans woman who was assaulted by a white supremacist um, transphobic man. And um, she was convicted of manslaughter, and a national campaign led to her being released early. So she was released after serving 19 months. So Asada, you know, writing in the 1970s is bringing this issue to our attention. Women of color are being locked up for fighting for their survival where Marissa Alexander was tried and sentenced was the <laughs> same place um, George Zimmerman was. The cop who murdered Trayvon Martin and got off free claiming self-defense. And yet Marissa Alexander, a black woman, went to jail for firing a warning shot. Self-defense laws don't protect women of color. Asata's own story didn't end in prison. In 1979, she escaped from prison with the assistance of members of the Black Liberation Army who succeeded in breaking her free. It is thought that Asada lived underground before making her way to Cuba, where she was granted political asylum in 1984. Um, while living in exile, she referred to herself as a 20th century escaped slave. As far as we know, Asata has continued to live in exile in Cuba. I have advocated and I still advocate revolutionary changes in the structure and in the principles that govern the United States. I advocate self-determination for my people and for all oppressed people inside the United States. I advocate an end to capitalist exploitation, the abolition of racist policies, the eradication of sexism, and the elimination of political repression. If that is a crime, then I am totally guilty. Women in Prison how It Is With Us, by Asada Shakur. We sit in the bullpen, we are all black, all restless, and we are all freezing. When we ask, the matron tells us that the heating system cannot be adjusted. All of us, with the exception of a woman tall and gaunt who looks naked and ravished, have refused the bologna sandwiches. The rest of us sit drinking bitter syrupy tea. The tall, 40-ish woman with sloping shoulders moves her head back and forth to the beat of a private tune while she takes small, tentative bites 
out of a bologna sandwich. Someone asks her what she's in for. Matter of factly, she says, they say I killed some nigga, but how could I have when I'm buried down in South Carolina? Everybody's face gets busy exchanging looks. A short, stout young woman wearing men's pants and men's shoes says, buried in South Carolina? Yeah, says the tall woman. South Carolina, that's where I'm buried. You don't know that? You don't know shit, do you? This ain't me. This ain't me. She kept repeating, this ain't me, until she had eaten all the bologna sandwiches. Then she brushed off the crumbs and withdrew, head moving again back into that world where only she could hear her private tune. Lucille comes to my tear to ask me how much time a sea felony conviction carries. I know, but I cannot say the words. I tell her I will look it up and bring the sentence charts for her to see. I know that she has just been convicted of manslaughter in the second degree. I also know that she can be sentenced up to 15 years. I knew from what she had told me before that the district attorney was willing to plea bargain. Five years probation exchange for a guilty plea or a lesser charge. Her lawyer felt that she had a case, specifically medical records which would prove that she had suffered repeated physical injuries as the result of beatings by the deceased and as a result of those beatings, on the night of her arrest, her arm was mutilated. She must still wear a brace on it, and one of her ears was partially severed in addition to other substantial injuries. Her lawyer felt that her testimony when she took the stand in her own defense would establish the fact that not only had she been repeatedly beaten by the deceased, but that on the night in question, he told her he would kill her, viciously beat her, and mauled her with a knife. But there is no self-defense in the state of New York. The district attorney made a big deal of the fact that she drank. And the jury, affected by TV racism, law and order, petrified by crime and unimpressed with Lucille as a responsible citizen, convicted her. And I was the one who had to tell her that she was facing 15 years in prison while we both silently wondered what would happen to the four teenage children that she had raised almost single-handedly. Spikey has short time, and it is evident the day before she is to be released that she does not want to go home. She comes to the Bing, administrative segregation, because she has received an infraction for fighting. Sitting in front of her cage and talking to her, I realized that the fight was a desperate, last-ditch effort in hope that the prison would take away her good days. She is in her late 30s. Her hands are swollen, enormous. There are huge open sores on her legs. She has about 10 teeth left, and her entire body is scarred and ashen. She has been on drugs about 20 years. Her veins have collapsed. She has fibrosis, epilepsy, and edema. She has not seen her three children in about eight years. She is ashamed to contact home because she robbed and abused her mother so many times. When we talk, it is around the Christmas holidays, and she tells me about her bad luck. She tells me that she has spent the last four Christmases in jail and tells me how happy she is to be going home. But I know that she has nowhere to go and the only friends she has in the world are here in jail. She tells me that the only regret she has about leaving is that she won't be singing in the choir at Christmas. As I talk to her, I wonder if she will be back. I tell her goodbye and wish her luck. 
Six days later, through the prison grapevine, I hear that she is back, just in time for the Christmas show. We are at sick call. We are waiting on wooden benches in a beige and orange room to see the doctor. Two young women who look only mildly battered by life sit wearing pastel dresses and pointy-toed state shoes. Wearing state is often a sign that the wearer probably cannot afford to buy sneakers in commissary. The two are talking about how well they were doing on the street. Eavesdropping, I find out that they both have fine old men that love the mess out of them. I find out that their men dress fly and wear some bad clothes, and so do they. One has 40 pairs of shoes while the other has 100 skirts. One has two suede and five leather coats. The other has seven suede and three leathers. One has three mink coats, a silver fox, and a leopard. The other has two minks, a fox jacket, a floor-length fox, and a chinchilla. One has four diamond rings and the other has five. One lives in a duplex with a sunken tub and a sunken living room with a waterfall. The other describes a mansion with a revolving living room. I'm relieved when my name is called. I've been sitting there feeling very, very sad. There are no criminals here at Rikers Island Correctional Institution for Women, New York. Only victims. Most of the women, over 95%, are Black and Puerto Rican. Many were abused children. Most have been abused by men and all have been abused by the system. There are no big-time gangsters here. No premeditated mass murderers, no godmothers. There are no big-time dope dealers, no kidnappers, no Watergate women. There are virtually no women here charged with white-collar crimes like embezzling or fraud. Most of the women have drug-related cases. Many are charged as accessories to crimes committed by men. The major crimes that women here are charged with are prostitution, pickpocketing, shoplifting, robbery, and drugs. Women who have prostitution cases make up a substantial part of the short-term population. The women see stealing or hustling as necessary for survival of themselves or their children because jobs are scarce and welfare is impossible to live on. One thing is clear. American capitalism is in no way threatened by the women in prison on Rikers Island. One gets the impression when first coming to Rikers Island that the architects conceived of it as a prison modeled after a juvenile center. In the areas where visitors usually pass, there is plenty of glass and plenty of plants and flowers. The cell blocks consist of two long corridors with cells on each side, connected by a watch room where the guards are stationed called a bubble. Each corridor has a day room with a TV, tables, multicolored chairs, a stove that doesn't work, and a refrigerator. There's a utility room with a sink and a washer and a dryer that do not work. Instead of bars, the cells have doors, which are painted bright, optimistic colors with slim glass observation panels. The doors are controlled electronically by the guards in the bubble. The cells are called rooms by everybody. They are furnished with a cot, a closet, a desk, a chair, a plastic upholstered headboard that opens for storage, a small bookcase, a mirror, a sink, and a toilet. The prison distributes brightly colored bedspreads and throw rugs for a homey effect. There is a school area, a gym, a carpeted auditorium, two inmate cafeterias, and outside recreation areas that are used during the summer months only. The guards have successfully convinced most of the women that Rikers Island is a country club. They say that it is a playhouse compared to some other prisons. 
especially male. A statement whose partial veracity is not predicated upon the humanity of correction officials at Rikers Island, but rather by contrast to the unbelievably barbaric conditions of other prisons. Many women are convinced that they are somehow, quote unquote, getting over. Some go so far as to reason that because they are not doing hard time, they are not really in prison. This image is further reinforced the pseudo-motherly attitude many of the guards, a deception which all too often successfully reverts women and children. The guards call the women inmates by their first names. The women address the guards either as officer, miss, or by nicknames. Teddy Bear, Spanky, Aunt Louise, Squeeze, Sarge, Black Beauty, Nutty Mahogany, etc. Frequently, when a woman returns to Rikers, she will make the rounds gleefully embracing her favorite guard. The prodigal daughter returns. If two women are having a debate about any given topic, the argument will often be resolved by asking the officer. The guards are forever telling the women to grow up or to act like ladies, to behave and to be good girls. If an inmate is breaking some minor rule like coming to say hi to her friend on another floor or locking in a few minutes later, a guard will say jokingly, don't let me have to come down there and beat your butt. It is not unusual to hear a guard tell a woman, what you need is a good spanking. The tone is often motherly, didn't I tell you young lady to? Or, you know better than that. Or, that's a good girl. And the women respond accordingly. Some guards and inmates play together. One officer's favorite game is taking off her belt and chasing her girls down the hall with it, smacking them on the butt. But beneath the motherly veneer, the reality of guard life is ever-present. Most of the guards are Black, usually from working-class, upward-bound, civil service-oriented backgrounds. They identify with the middle class, have middle-class values, and are extremely materialistic. They are not the most intelligent women in the world, and many are extremely limited. Most are aware that there is no justice in the American judicial system and that Blacks and Puerto Ricans are discriminated against in every facet of American life. But at the same time, they are convinced that the system is somehow lenient to them. To them, the women in prison are losers who don't have enough sense to stay out of jail. Most believe in the bootstrap theory. Anybody can make it if they try hard enough. They congratulate themselves on their great accomplishments. In contrast to themselves, they see the inmate as ignorant, uncultured, self-destructive, weak-minded, and stupid. They ignore the fact that their dubious accomplishments are not based on superior intelligence or effort, but only on chance and a civil service list. Many guards hate and feel trapped by their jobs. The guard is exposed to a certain amount of abuse from co-workers, from the brass, as well as from inmates, ass-kissing, robotizing, and mandatory overtime. It is common practice for guards to work a double shift at least once a week. But no matter how much they hate the military structure, the infighting, the ugliness of their tasks, they are very aware of how close they are to the welfare lines. If they were not working as guards, most would be underpaid or unemployed. Many would miss the feeling of superiority and power as much as they would miss money, especially the cruel, sadistic ones. The guards are usually defensive about their jobs and indicate by their behavior that they are not at all free from guilt. They repeatedly compulsively say as if to convince themselves, this is a job just like any other job. The more they say it, the more preposterous it seems. 
The major topic of conversation here is drugs. 80% of the inmates have used drugs when they were in the street getting high. Is usually the first thing a woman says she's going to do when she gets out. In prison as on the streets, an escapist culture prevails. At least 50% of the prison population takes some form of psychotropic drug. Elaborate schemes to obtain contraband drugs are always in the works. Days are spent in pleasant distractions, soap operas, prison love, affairs, card playing and game playing, a tiny minority or seriously involved in academic pursuits or the learning of skills. An even smaller minority attempt to study available law books. There are no jailhouse lawyers and most of the women lack knowledge of even the most rudimentary legal procedures. When asked what happened in court or what their lawyer said, they either don't know or don't remember. Feeling totally helpless and totally railroaded, a woman will curse out her lawyer or the judge with little knowledge of what is being done or of what should be done. Most plead guilty whether they are guilty or not. The few who do go to trial usually have lawyers appointed by the state and usually are convicted. Here, the word lesbian seldom, if ever, is mentioned. Most, if not all, of the homosexual relationships here involve role-playing. The majority of relationships are either asexual or semi-sexual. The absence of sexual consummation is only partially explained by prison prohibition against any kind of sexual behavior. Basically, the women are not looking for sex. They are looking for love, for concern and companionship for relief from the overwhelming sense of isolation and solitude that pervades each of us. Women who are quote-unquote aggressive or who play the masculine roles are referred to as butches, bull daggers, or stud broads. They are always in demand because they are always in the minority. Women who are passive or who play feminine roles are referred to as femmes. The butch-femme relationship are often oppressive, resembling the most oppressive exploitative aspect of a sexist society. It is typical to hear butches threatening femmes with physical violence, and it is not uncommon for butches to actually beat their women. Some butches consider themselves pimps and go with the women who have the most commissary, the most contraband, or the best outside connections. They feel they are a class above ordinary women, which entitles them to quote-unquote respect. They dictate to femmes what they are to do, and many insist the femmes wash, iron, sew, and clean their cells for them. A butch will refer to another butch as a man. A butch who is well-liked is known as one of the fellas by her peers. Once in prison, changes in roles are common. Many women who are strictly heterosexual in the street become butch in prison. Femmes often create butches by convincing an inmate that she would make a cute butch. About 80% of the prison population engage in some form of homosexual relationship. Almost all follow negative stereotype male-female role models. There is no connection between the women's movement and lesbianism. Most of the women at Rikers Island have no idea what feminism is, let alone lesbianism. Feminism, the women's liberation movement, and the gay liberation movement are worlds away from women at Rikers. The black liberation struggle is equally removed from the lives of women at Rikers. While they verbalize acute recognition that America is a racist country, where the poor are treated like dirt, they, nevertheless, feel responsible for the filth of their lives. The air at Rikers is permeated with self-hatred. Many women bear marks on their arms, legs, and wrists from suicide attempts or self-mutilation. They speak about themselves in self-deprecating terms. They consider themselves failures.
While most women contend that Whitey is responsible for their oppression, they do not examine the cause or source of that oppression. There is no sense of class struggle. They have no sense of communism, no definition of it, but they consider it a bad thing. They do not want to destroy Rockefeller. They want to be like him. Nicky Barnes, a major dope seller, is discussed with reverence. When he was convicted, practically everyone was sad. Many gave speeches about how kind, smart, and generous he was. No one spoke about the sale of drugs to our children. Politicians aren't considered liars and crooks. The police are hated, yet during cop and robber movies, some cheer loudly for the cops. One woman pasted photographs of Farrah Fawcett majors all over her cell because she is a bad police bitch. Kojak and Beretta get their share of admiration. A striking difference between women and men prisoners at Rikers Island is the absence of revolutionary rhetoric among the women. We have no study groups. We have no revolutionary literature around. There are no groups of militants attempting to get their heads together. The women at Rikers seem vaguely aware of what a revolution is, but generally regarded as an impossible dream, not at all practical. While men in prison struggle to maintain their manhood, there is no comparable struggle by women to preserve their womanhood. One frequently hears women say, put a bunch of bitches together and you've got nothing but trouble. And women don't stick together. That's why we don't have nothing. Men prisoners constantly refer to each other as brother. Women prisoners rarely refer to each other as sister. Instead, bitch and whore are the common terms of reference. Women, however, are much kinder to each other than men. And any form of violence other than a fist fight is virtually unknown. Rape, murder, and stabbings at the women's prison are non-existent. For many, prison is not that much different from the street. It is for some a place to rest and recuperate. For the prostitute, prison is a vacation from turning tricks in the rain and snow. A vacation from brutal pimps. Prison for the addict is a place to get clean, get medical work done, and gain weight. Often when the habit becomes too expansive, the addict gets herself busted, usually subconsciously, so she can get back in shape, leave with a clean system, ready to start all over again. One woman claims that for a month or two every year, she either goes to jail or to the crazy house to get away from her husband. For many, the cells are not much different from the tenements, the shooting galleries, and the welfare hotels they live on in the street. Sick call is no different from the clinic or the hospital emergency room. The fights are the same, except they are less dangerous. The police are the same. The poverty is the same. The alienation is the same. The racism is the same. The sexism is the same. The drugs are the same, and the system is the same. Rikers is just another institution. And childhood school was their prison, or youth houses, or reform schools, or children's shelters, or foster homes, or mental hospitals, or drug programs, and they see all institutions as indifferent to their needs yet necessary to their survival. The women at Rikers Island come from places like Harlem, Brownsville, Bedford-Stuyvesant, South Bronx, and South Jamaica. They come from places where dreams have been abandoned like the buildings, where there is no more sense of community, where neighborhoods are transient, where isolated people run from one fire trap to another. The cities have removed us from our strengths, from our roots, from our traditions, they have taken away our gardens and our sweet potato pies and given us McDonald's. They have become our prisons, locking us into the futility and decay of pissy hallways that led nowhere. 
They have alienated us from each other and made us fear each other. They have given us dope and television as a culture. There are no politicians to trust, no roads to follow, no popular progressive culture to relate to. There are no deals, no more promises of golden streets and no place else to migrate. My sisters in the streets, like my sisters at Rikers Island, see no way out. Where can I go? Said a woman on the day she was going home. If there's nothing to believe in, she said, I can't do nothing except try to find Cloud Nine. What of our past? What of our history? What of our future? I can imagine the pain and the strength of my great-great-grandmothers who were slaves and my great-great-grandmothers who were Cherokee Indians trapped on reservations. I remembered my great-grandmother who walked everywhere rather than sit in the back of the bus. I think about North Carolina, my hometown, and I remember the women of my grandmother's generation, strong, fierce women who could stop you with a look out of the corner of their eyes. Women who walked with majesty, who could wring a chicken's neck and scale a fish, who could pick cotton, plant a garden, sow without a pattern. Women who boiled clothes white in big black cauldrons and who hummed work songs and lullabies. Women who visited the elderly, made soup for the sick and shortening bread for the babies. Women who delivered babies, searched for healing roots and brewed medicines. Women who darned socks and chopped wood and laid bricks. Women who could swim rivers and shoot the head off a snake. Women who took passionate responsibility for their children and for their neighbors' children too. The women in my grandmother's generation made giving an art form. Here, gal, take this pot of collards to Sister Sue. Take this bag of pecans to the school for the teacher. Stay here while I go tend to Mr. Johnson's leg. Every child in the neighborhood ate in their kitchens. They called each other sister because of a feeling rather than as the result of a movement. They supported each other through the lean times, sharing the little they had. The women of my grandmother's generation in my hometown trained their daughters for womanhood. They taught them to give respect and to demand respect. They taught their daughters how to churn butter, how to use elbow grease. They taught their daughters to respect the strength of their bodies, to lift boulders and how to kill a hog, what to do for colic, how to break a fever and how to make a poultice, patchwork quilts, plait hair, and how to hum and sing. They taught their daughters to take care, to take charge and to take responsibility. They would not tolerate a lazy heifer or a gal with her head in the clouds. Their daughters had to learn how to get their lessons, how to survive, how to be strong. The women of my grandmother's generation were the glue that held my family and the community together. They were the backbone of the church and of the school. They regarded outside institutions with dislike and distrust. They were determined that their children should survive and they were committed to a better future. I think about my sisters in the movement. I remember the days when draped in African garb, we rejected our foremothers and ourselves as castrators. We did penance for robbing the brother of his manhood. I remember the days of the Panther Party when we were moderately liberated, when we were allowed to wear pants and expected to pick up the gun. The days when we gave doe-eyed looks to our leaders. The days when we worked like dogs and struggled desperately for the respect which they struggled desperately not to give us. We visited our sisters who bore the complete responsibility of the children while the brother was doing his thing or had moved on to bigger and better things. Most of us rejected the white women's movement. 
Miss Anne was still Miss Anne to us, whether she burned her bras or not. We could not muster sympathy for the fact that she was trapped in her mansion and oppressed by her husband. We were and still are in a much more terrible jail. We knew that our experiences as black women were completely different from those of our sisters in the white women's movement. And we had no desire to sit in some consciousness raising group with white women and bear our souls. Women can never be free in a country that is not free. We can never be liberated in a country where the institutions that control our lives are oppressive. We can never be free while our men are oppressed or while the American government and American capitalism remain intact. But it is imperative to our struggle that we build a strong black women's movement. It is imperative that we, as black women, talk about the experiences that shaped us, that we assess our strengths and weaknesses and define our own history. It is imperative that we discuss positive ways to teach and socialize our children. The poison and pollution of capitalist cities is choking us. We need the strong medicine of our foremothers to make us well again. We need their medicines to give us strength to fight and the drive to win. Under the guidance of Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer and all of our foremothers, let us rebuild a sense of community. Let us rebuild the culture of giving and carry on the tradition of fierce determination to move on closer to freedom. You've been listening to episode six of A People's Anthology, featuring Asata Shakur's essay, Women in Prison, How It Is With Us. The text was read by Aja Monet an activist and poet who co-founded The Dream Defenders and Smoke Signals Studio, and author of My Mother Was a Freedom Fighter. It was introduced by Jackie Wang, Black Studies scholar, poet, and author of Carceral Capitalism. Our theme music is by Marissa Anderson. The People's Anthology is a production from Boston Review, a political and literary magazine, both online and in print since 1975 visit us at bostonreview.net.